we can stand together, open up to Psalm 119. Start at verse 145 this morning. And it reads, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I meditate, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for us teaches us everything we need to know about who you are. We thank you that it is true, that we can rely on it, that we can depend on every promise that you've given us. I pray this morning that you would help us to see more clearly what you have declared. Lord God, that you would help me by your spirit, give me strength to preach your word. Hide me behind the cross, Lord God, so that Jesus may be glorified, and we come together in fellowship this morning to worship him. We thank you, Father, for your patience, your grace, your mercy, and your love. We ask that you're with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. May we see you. There's a literal sense in which we can study the scriptures. We can look at the scriptures very literally, find the actual meaning to actual words in an actual context, an actual structure, and there's an actual language. We can look at the text and find very literal reflections from what we read. But there's also a figurative sense with which we can explore God's Word. It's a sense of metaphor where there's meaning behind the words that we actually read. We're reading David's words that are born from experiences. So we're reading accounts of history. We're reading accounts of experience that he literally went through and he's telling us the story. 
But then we're also reading deeper meanings behind what he's sharing with us. Things that we can relate to on some level, what he's saying. But then there's something else that seems to be behind what he's trying to convey. So many ways to explore the words that David shares and just the whole of Scripture itself. As we listen to David in Psalm 119, we're listening to an actual person. We're not just listening to words that come and collaborate together to give us this paragraph that we should consider. But a person wrote these words. David helps us understand his testimony of God's goodness in his life. And the scriptures that we read give us a sense of David's kingship. The words that he writes gives us a sense of his prophetic wisdom. The words he writes also help us understand he has a gift of poetry. There's an added effect of reading the Psalms of David as we observe the beauty with which the words are written. And even, even if you're not artistically inclined, that doesn't necessarily move you. I think you'd most likely agree that you'd like to speak about God and speak to God the way David does. If expressions of praise and the stanzas of prayers had a literary standard, I think we could all agree that David's up there. So I hope that we can appreciate these words with a holistic approach. That we're not just reading these words as, as textbook language. Because God intends his word to be enjoyed, not just inhaled. As we read these words, I hope that we pause, reflect, that we take some time to hear from God. So idea of pausing and reflecting has kind of hit home for me, especially this morning because I just, a couple of days ago, watched the Mr. Rogers documentary. That man was a genius. And sometimes there would be things that he shares that he just causes you to just stop and think about what you are considering in the moment. And it was powerful because, you know, we're, we're running a million miles a minute. And the, the notion that we have to just stop and think about something very important is revolutionary. I hope that practice is something that you found to be helpful as you observe Psalm 119. And we see literal words, we see literal experiences that David is conveying, but the figurative sense of what he's also sharing, maybe the metaphor, the different meanings behind what he's saying is also starting to sink in. If we begin at verse 145, we can be confident as we read these words that David literally was crying out with his whole heart. Some of you have never cried out with your whole heart for anything. But could there be any more healthier reason to literally cry out with your whole heart from your soul 
than to beg God to answer you, to beg God to save you. To beg God to save you in connection with keeping his commands, keeping his statutes. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. Save me that I may observe your testimonies. Not just to find some sort of answer for an individual circumstance or a favorable outcome, but that you may be faithful to his word. To cry out with your whole heart that God will save you unto his righteousness to his truth. Verse 147 tells us something about David's practice and his prayer life. I rise before dawn and cry for help. Speaks to a literal practice of getting up early staying up late to seek the Lord. I'm not sure how this chapter has made you feel about your prayer life, but I can speak for myself. It's provided a, a much-needed spark for me. This notion of getting up early or staying up late to seek God, I can assure you, is not a natural desire. It's not something I would want to do. But it is a supernatural hunger. It's driven by the reality of being a new creation and knowing what it means to nourish the new creation. Knowing what it means to cry out for a, a, a God that has remade you, given you new affections giving you new pursuits, to want more from him. There's so much to be gained in spending additional inconvenient time seeking the Lord, pleading with the Lord. There's so much to be gained in that. Hoping in his words. Meditating on his promises, as David says here. There's so much time in, in looking at something that is inconvenient to do and pressing into that moment and saying, this is when I want more of God. Not when it all falls together and it seems to make perfect sense, but when, when you know you have to leave something behind and step into a moment that doesn't really look convenient and comfortable for you and say, I want Jesus at that moment. This literal practice is a challenge for all of us to consider where the Word of God cultivates in us a desire for more of God, and we continue to acknowledge our need for Him. But there's also a figurative sense here. I want you to look at the phrase, before the dawn. There's a figurative sense to just observe and, and maybe consider a little bit more deeply. 
David's used language before, before this chapter, that speaks to the night or the night seasons. We'll look at a couple of those verses in a second. The night or the night seasons communicate something about the times of life where we can't clearly see hope. We can't clearly see direction. We can't clearly understand what's happening around us. The night is, is the time where dawn, dawn hasn't yet come, or the, they're the times where we feel wounded. We feel alone. We feel overwhelmed by our circumstances. These dark times, the night seasons, are the place where we see pain manifest in tangible ways. The intensity of spiritual warfare becomes something that we are constantly grappling with. The night seasons can be times where you don't often recognize your own Christianity. You find find yourself a bit disoriented about what you really believe. Most people, most people who would say that they're doing good are in the midst of a night season. Some of you guys are in a night season right now. I don't have any disillusions about church and the gathering of God's people to distance ourselves from the reality of life swallowing us whole, finding ourselves disoriented and lacking direction, reaching out in the darkness, trying to find something stable to hold on to. Let's take a closer look at David's words in Psalm 16, verses 5 through 8. Psalm 16, verses 5 through 8. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, in the night seasons, as another translation says, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David's words in Psalm 35, 30 verse 5. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But he says this, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry or endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, you can choose to just look at that in a literal sense of the time when the sun goes down and you've entered into REM or you're tossing and turning, you have difficulty sleeping and it's just hard at night. Or you can step in a little closer and see what's being communicated here, that there are times 
where we feel the life circumstances will burden us and overwhelm us. There are times where we allow that to happen. There are times we find ourselves distant from God. There are times where we're not ultimately searching for Him or seeking after Him. But David knows what to do in the night seasons. When he can't see his way, he cries out to God for help. When he can't see his way, he hopes in his words. He meditates on his promises. What an example this is to show us what we should do when we can't see hope, when we can't find rest, we can't make sense of the outcome, and we can't find our peace. Before the dawn, you rise to cry out to God for help, to hope in his word, to meditate on his promises. Before the dawn comes, you anticipate his peace. You make war against your temptations. We put our weight on the Lord's promises. And when the dawn does come, we find joy. After endurance has made its complete work, we find our rest with Jesus. It's important to look for the dawn, but it matters what you do before dawn comes. It matters how you pursue God. It matters how you trust God before dawn comes. Thankful that God gives us a witness of what it looks like to endure, what it looks like to find hope when it's not so easily found. Verse 149, David is asking God to hear him according to his perfect, unfailing love, not according to his entitlement. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. That's his, his prayer. Maybe you've read some of these verses and says, David sounds a little like a spoiled brat. He wants a lot from God. He keeps asking and begging and, and constantly bugging God about all these different things. David sounds like he needs to chill for a little bit. There's, there's too much he's, he's requiring of God. What about his responsibility? What about the way he conducts himself? David has no problem constantly coming for, before God and asking for help. He models his dependence on the Lord. He asks different ways for, for, he asks in different ways for God to respond to him. Maybe that's difficult to process because we've become so self-reliant. Because we've become so confident in our expression of Christianity to the point where we don't think that it's right to continue to ask things from God. David has no problem. He says, hear my voice, not according to what I'm demanding, but according to your love. Your love, who, which never gets tired of me back at this place. 
Your love, which beckons me closer no matter where I find myself. Your love, which constantly overflows to me no matter whatever perception I have of my own self. Answer me according to your love. Praying this, according to your justice, give me life. According to your justice, revive me, as we talked about weeks ago. According to your justice, lead us into revival. What an amazing concept it is to just imagine revival by God's justice by God's justice, by what he has said is right, to be revived by his righteousness, to be made alive by what he has said and set up as the ultimate and perfect way to live. Being revived by that, not having to to, to constantly complain about the way things are, not having to just resolve to to accept less than the ultimate standard, not just having to, to, to basically reduce our expectations about what possibly could be in our lives, but to say God's justice is literally what makes us all alive. Verse 150, they draw near who persecute me with an evil purpose. They're far from your law. There's literal meaning here. If you know enough about David's story, he's been surrounded by persecutors, those who have had evil purposes. He's had these encounters with King Saul and his son Absalom, who sought to kill him, who sought to oppress him literally, physically. So there's a, a tangible sense where he, he's feeling the weight of that kind of a pursuit, the hot pursuit of someone who has an evil purpose designed for him. But what's figurative here? Can this, be, can, can this only be looked at as, as in the sense of somebody who's inflicting physical harm or presenting a real danger, a tangible danger? Or is it likely to also take away from this that there is a, a spiritual danger? There is, there is an actual pursuit of persecutors of those who would condemn him as a satanic attack. See, David, he gives us a sense of his own insecurities. He gives us a sense of the things that he's afraid of, the things that he knows that he has done that he has to reckon with before God. And one thing we should know about Satan is Satan is one who accuses the people of God. He is one who pursues those of us who have been redeemed and established by God's grace as those who don't deserve it. Those who don't deserve the safety we claim to have. Those who don't deserve the refuge. Those, those who don't deserve the promises that we obtain. 
and he's relentless in his pursuit. There are times where we can, be, we can become broken all over again because we can't get our faces out of the mirror. We, we're looking at all of our flaws and all of our failures, and that's the only conclusion we can come to. The verse 151, but you are near, O Lord. Those who persecute me draw near, but God is near to us. All your commands are true. How many of you guys have sensed the Lord's nearness by way of his words? When you experience that kind of an accusatory oppression from Satan, from people around you. But then you read God's words and you see what is true in the gospel and the Lord literally becomes near to you. Nearer to you than all the false accusations, nearer to you than all the condemnation that you carry to the mirror. But the Word of God opens up your eyes to who you are, your need for Him, your depravity. But at the same time, grace abounds more where sin abounds. We draw near to Him when we look at His Word. The Lord's nearness by way of his words, they leap off the page or they begin to resonate in our hearts in the face of tests and trials. David's experiencing a literal pursuit of persecutors, but finds that the Lord is near and his commands remain true. Verse 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. It's great to experience the Lord's nearness, find peace and rest in all that he has said that is true. But that assurance that we gain from reading the truth in God's word isn't just for now, isn't just circumstantial, David crying out to the Lord isn't just for him to meet him in those moments, but it is something that abides forever. That's a different kind of peace. That's a peace you can revisit no matter what you're going through. Now, as we continue with this next session, I hope that we can rejoice in knowing that we can ask God to do something. We can ask God to do something. Sometimes it's, it feels righteous just to, just to resign to the struggle and, and resign to all of the pain and all that stuff. But then we can also ask God to act. We can ask him to act. I don't know if, if your prayer life looks like that, where you're, where you're literally asking God to do something. You're not just saying, oh, the cares of life have fallen on me, and I just accept this as my lot of, as a suffering Christian. 
But you call out to God and ask him to do something in the midst of whatever the trial, the circumstance is. Verse 153, look on my affliction. God, look, look at my affliction, look at the circumstance, and do what? Deliver me. Deliver me. This is not just this conditional command that David is making to God where he's trying to make a deal with God. Hey, I don't forget your law, so look at my circumstance and deliver me. He's not making his case to God to say, you know, look, I, look at all the right things I've done, so now I need you to, to literally look at this righteousness and reward it. This approach should affect your posture to, 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 to give you a sense of who you're interacting with. This is a picture of faith in who God has declared himself to be. He's not saying, because I have done right, I need you to act. It's because you are right. Your righteousness literally impacts my circumstances. I call for you to act on based on what you have said you already will do. I call on you to be who you say you are. I call on you to actually fulfill that which you have already testified about in the words that I have read. I come to you because I know you are righteous and you desire to do good on earth in my circumstance and beyond whatever I'm going through. Deliver me. I don't forget your law. I know who you are. Deliver me. Verse 154, plead my cause. Redeem me. In other words, fight for me and defend me. See, David faced false accusers. David faced all kinds of people who had wrong perceptions about him. He couldn't change their minds. He couldn't go into their hearts and make them conceive a different conclusion about who he is. So he looks to God to vindicate him. Anybody can't stand when somebody has the wrong impression of you? You can't stand when somebody thinks something about you that's not true, and you just literally want to shake them and say, no, you're wrong. Even though while you're shaking them, you've probably lost the argument. But we hate that, right? We hate when we can't, we feel like we can't defend ourselves. Somebody has come to a conclusion. They've already, can, they've already said that this is what you are. This is what you have done. This is all that, that can be here in front of me. I have my own evidence. I have my own personal experiences. I have my own cultural expectations. So this is what you are. David pleads to God, defend me. Stand up for me. Fight for me. See, there's, there's a surrender that takes place first before you even get there. You have to just resolve in your own mind that you can't control the outcome. You have to resign yourself to understand that you don't have ultimate control over the hearts and minds of people and conclusions. 
You have to first start there with that posture, and then you have to go to God, who is your advocate, your defender, the mediator, the person who you know is ultimately righteousness, and you have to ask him to defend you. The one who does have control over the hearts and minds of people. The one who does orchestrate circumstances for his glory. The one who is just and true and righteous in all that he is. And when you trust him to vindicate you, that's when the peace comes. That's when the rest comes. That's how you can then ask Give me life, revive me according to your promise. Verses 155 through 159 kind of expounds upon this, this idea where David is, is looking at what he's facing from the wicked. He's, he's facing dangers seen and unseen from the wicked, those who would oppress him. But then he's also kind of toggling over to what it looks like to be righteous in the midst of that, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the oppression and the struggle. So verses 155 through 159 kind of contrast between wicked and righteous. One fifty-five. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Those who reject God's word have no chance. I think that's a pretty simple concept. Those who reject God's word before God have no standing. Salvation is far from them. 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life again. Revive me according to your word. Mercy and revival are our testimonies. The righteous are made alive by mercy His mercy is great. Those who are righteous meditate on that reality often. His mercy is great. 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. Many. You'll find so many people who will seek to divert his attention from the word. Those who literally afflict him physically and, and punish him for things that he did not do. And they're trying to cause him to swerve from his belief in his steadfast, steadfastness according to God's word. He won't swerve. We see in David's example a picture of spiritual warfare. I know sometimes you may think about that or may view that in a certain spectrum, but the, the reality of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. 
You're not, you're not going to get away from that, no matter how pretty we try to make this, but we are in a battle. We are constantly in conflict with forces that want to see us disregard God's Word. So what does it look like to fight in the midst of that? David gives us a wonderful model here, seeking after his word. I do not swerve from your testimonies. Now, I would like to say that 158 and 159 are most helpful looked at as we, if we look at them together. Because looking at 158 alone, it may not be as helpful. Now, I, I want to tell you, as, as, look, I'm a sinner, and I tried my best to soften this. I, I tried my best to soften this, this passage, but it's, it's just not going to work. So we have to deal with the fact that he says, I look at the faithless with disgust. Because they don't keep your commands. That sounds awfully self-righteous. I just, want to, I just want to preface with how that feels. That, that sounds very self-righteous. I look at the faithless in disgust. Now, I, I, maybe, you, maybe that's just you like, yeah, amen, David. That's how I feel. I, I, <laughs> I hesitate with, with that a little bit because I have been faithless. I have been hesitant. I, have, I haven't always waved the banner of the gospel in the midst of every circumstance and trial. So to look at the faithless in disgust is a strong emotion. But if we look at it in conjunction with verse 159, it gives us a better sense of what's being communicated here. Because we can look at verse 159 where he says, Consider how I love your precepts. And we can understand that a deep love for God's Word arises in us a disdain for those who disregard it. So if you cherish something, if you have a love, just a profound sense of affection for something, and someone else defiles it, someone else tramples on it, someone else sets it on fire, someone else spits on it, someone else does something unspeakable to it, then there will be a response. You will respond because of your love and your affection for that thing. So the question becomes, can you conceive of a love for God's Word so deep that you are grieved when someone else finds contempt in it? Can you conceive of a love for what God's promises are, his testimonies are, what the gospel message itself contains? Can you conceive a love that you have for that that goes so deep that when someone else spits on it, it affects you? It causes you to be grieved deeply. It causes you to be disgusted It causes you to have a negative, offended response. I guess a better question would be, do you mourn for sin? They would take us back to verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears 
because people did not keep your law. David loves the word of God. He loves God's promises. He loves his rules. Can we conceive of a, of that kind of an affection, a devotion to what God has said, to where the, the sin of the surrounding world, the sin of individual people in specific circumstances causes us to mourn? Finally, verse 160, the sum of God's word. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Objective, undefiled, totally reliable, unquestionable truth. What is the premium on that? truth. When Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate in his high position, this is kind of disturbing if you think about it. There's a person here who literally holds Jesus's life in his hands, and he asks a question (laughs) to Jesus. He asks Jesus, what is truth? Hey, fella, you're supposed to judge as to whether something's right or wrong in a person's life. You can't be asking questions like, what is truth? You need to know what's true, and you need to know what's a lie. Jesus doesn't hold that as a heavy weight. The Word of God is not something that's apologetic or hesitant about acknowledging itself as truth. The sum of God's word is truth. For David, it's the Torah. As we've said before, it's the first five books of the Bible. That's what he had to meditate on. For us, it's both Old and New Testaments together. The sum of God's word is truth. Not only that, but everything that was once concealed is now revealed. What David knew of God was a a, a foretaste of that which was to be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ being the sum of God's word, the sum of God's word is truth. We understand that the, the sum of God's word is not just words on a page. It's not just literary language. It is an actual person. The sum of God's word is a person, and the person, thank God, praise be to God, claims to literally be the truth. Jesus himself, he claims to be the truth. The sum of God's word, the revelation of Jesus Christ, if we are so uncomfortable and less inclined to read that last book in our constructed Bible here, the revelation of Jesus Christ affirms, acknowledges, establishes him forever as the truth. In John 5, 39 
The Pharisees and this big crowd were, were all gathering around him. And Jesus said, you, you search the Scriptures wherein you think you have eternal life, but they, they testify of me. They testify of me. That's a huge claim. They've been pouring over all these words, all this history for all this time. And this man walks up to them and says, they're talking about me. Everything that you have committed your life to learning, whatever you thought righteousness was, whatever you thought truth and holiness and beauty is, it, it's me. We talked about the dawn. He is the dawn. He is the revelation. And as the revelation tells us, He is the bright and the morning star. He is the truth before dawn. He is the truth at dawn. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The fullness of joy is found in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful how both literal and figurative combine in finding that the sum of God's Word is a person. See, these aren't just words on a page where we're reading God's words are truth. And we're saying, okay, yes, literal words. I can go read stories in the Old Testament and find that these words are true, these things happen. But what's literally being communicated, which may sound figurative, is that the sum of all of these testimonies, the sum of all of these precepts, the sum of all of these rules is a person. So it's literal and figurative. Everything that you're finding about God, finding out about God, everything that you're coming to acknowledge and worship Him for is summed up in the man Jesus Christ. So we have before us this beautiful piece of prophetic poetry. Imagery and double entendres that had deeper and fuller meanings than textbook conclusions. And we should end out with saying what a blessing it is that we can worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. In truth. As you struggle and wrestle through what it could be true and what people have lied to you about and the phoniness that we all portray at different times, God's word's never running from what is true. We'll meet him at dawn. And in the sense, we are all in the midst of a night season because we're still wrestling with the fallenness of this world. But he is true now. He is for us now, the dawn. So we are the already, but not yet, when the dawn actually comes and this world is forever changed. Our bodies, our minds, our souls are forever changed changed to be with him, worshiping him forever.
That's the truth that we can rest in. It's the peace that we cling to. That's the hope that we can constantly be reminded of. As we gather today and we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, we can take God's word as true, remembering Christ's sacrifice. The fact that he came to redeem us, his body broken, his blood poured out, leads us to the sum, these words, the sum of God's truth. It is finished. It is finished. We take this to remember that all that needed to be done was done by Jesus. It's a blessing to remember having the dawn before the dawn as we anticipate the dawn. And eternity shines bright, brightly over our lives. Again, I'm very much influenced by Fred Rogers right now, but think about that. Think about the dawn. Don't pass over these words. Don't even rush to go out there and hug and talk to each other about things that you're going through. Like, don't hesitate to look at this again. As we take the bread and the cup together, think for a minute of the goodness of Jesus. And all that he has done, all that he has said is true. It's true. Let's take the Lord's Supper together, being reminded that the sum of his word is truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for us. We thank you that it's good for us. We thank you that you're merciful, you're patient, you're kind, you're so gracious. And yet, you are the expression of justice that we could never achieve. Your righteousness reigns beyond all of our depravity. And yet, you are near to those who reflect upon your law. You are near to those who hope in your word. I pray this morning that this would resonate for us, not just in our time together, but throughout the week. That you would save those with a dark and cold heart who can't even find their way in the midst of a night season. That you give us the courage to call out to you for help. And that you'd meet us, God, with your unfailing steadfast love. We pray these things and we trust you. In Jesus' name.